Welcome to episode five of Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read Hackers and Painters, a collection of essays by noted entrepreneur, programmer, and founder of startup incubator Y Combinator, Paul Graham. Graham touches on social business and cultural issues related to technology and entrepreneurship. But before we get to the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager and former consultant. Uh, my name is Molson Hart, and I'm an entrepreneur. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. So let's talk about the author. Who is Paul Graham? So Paul was born in 1964 in England and moved to Pittsburgh when he was four. He got a BA in philosophy from Cornell in 86 and a PhD and master's in computer science from Harvard in 90. He then studied painting at RISD and the Academia in Florence, uh, hence the Hackers and Painters, and then founded ViaWeb in 1996, which was the first web application, some claim. We'll talk about that a little later, I'm sure. He sold ViaWeb to Yahoo in 98 for $49.6 million, which became Yahoo Store. And he started writing blogs on his website, Paul Graham, which forms the basis of this book, which was published in 2004. So shortly after that, he founded Y Combinator in 2005. And again, I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but a startup accelerator. And he stepped down as president of Y Combinator in 2014. Okay, so his big company that he was successful with was ViaWeb. What was ViaWeb? It was basically Shopify, but in 1996. And so he claims, and I think others back it up, that it was actually the first web application. So the software was actually running on their servers. The browser was the way for people to interact with the application itself. Hence, via web, or I guess you know, via the web is the way that you were able to work on the software. And that allowed people to create stores. So it had the ability to take payments, to add things to carts, to run different kinds of code that would be necessary for like a simple online business. So a pretty interesting and really innovative uh, solution. And they were able to sell very rapidly. So, you know, sold for 50 million only two years after launch. What year did they sell it? 98. 98. I guess basically a year before the, um, you know, height of the dot com boom. So I bet most of our listeners are familiar with Y Combinator, but just for those that aren't, what is Y Combinator? Yeah, so Y Combinator is a startup accelerator. It has now helped over 2,000 companies, including Airbnb, Reddit, Twitch, Stripe, Coinbase, Instacart, and Dropbox. Um, those companies are now collectively worth $155 billion. Essentially, they take a small percentage of equity in the company in exchange for some cash and then coming out to San Francisco for a program where you learn a lot about, you know, how to grow a fast moving startup, how to potentially work with investors. You get intro to a lot of, you know, former YC companies, as well as ultimately it concludes with Demo Day, where a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley's most sought after investors come and listen to the pitches of all of the YC batch. But Molson, I know you actually applied to YC, so you probably know a lot better than I do. I'm not sure I do know better than you do, but I did apply to YC in uh, 2015, and uh, it was kind of an interesting experience. What was the experience like? Uh, they paid for me to fly all the way from China to Sunnyvale, California, and uh, the idea that I was proposing was basically like Trader Joe's for the internet. So in 2015, the idea of taking like Costco's Kirkland Signature and selling it online, basically private labeling, creating your own brand of every high volume good on the internet was like totally new. Maybe in t 
2019, there were, there were a bunch of companies doing that. But that was my idea. And so I applied to Y Combinator. I was like really annoying. I like contacted all the members of Y Combinator, Michael Seibel, Tikon Bernstam, who went to school with us many years before we did. And I got an interview. They paid for my ticket uh, all the way from China to Y Combinator. And ultimately, they turned me down. It's unclear why. I'm definitely a weird, eccentric person, and I may have rubbed a couple of people the wrong way. I definitely got the impression from that interview that they had no idea what they were doing when it came to hardware. I mean, they certainly knew how to build software companies, but they had the interviewers were asking me like really stupid questions that showed that they had no concept of warehousing logistics production. All right, so don't know why I got turned down. They gave me a pretty like generic rejection email, which came from the current head of Y Combinator, some guy named Jeff. And so in 2015, we had about $500,000 of revenue and we were profitable. So I told them going to the interview that I wasn't going to take their standard deal. I don't really remember what it was, but it was like $12,000 for 7% of the company or something like that. And I was like, hell no. And that probably uh, contributed to their rejection, which uh, was definitely a mistake. You got to make them pay for it. <laughs> Good luck with that. Okay, let's get into the book. The first essay in the book is called Why Nerds Are Unpopular. So what's Graham's critique of the school system in that essay? He, Before he gets into the school system itself, he talks about how smart kids have an inverse relationship in school between how smart they are and how popular they are. And that the smarter you are, the less popular you're likely to be in high school. And he says that that's not true when you're an adult, and that's not true when you're in elementary school. But then he goes even further than that, and he talks about the entire school system being kind of like a prison. Why does he say the school system is like a prison? I don't honestly remember super clearly the, the details of the, the prison and metaphor exactly. But I think his general premise is that schools are really just a place to house children and that adults need to be able to do their work. And so they just have created a system for how they can not have to deal with their kids all day when they are, you know, above a, a certain pretty young age. I, I think that's probably essentially where it came from, but I, I don't know if I'm completely missing whatever it was you were, you were hoping for us to discuss there. So I'll throw it back to you, Kopech. Is there anything else about the prison metaphor that, that resonated for you? Yeah, that's correct. So he's saying that teenagers in the 19th, 18th century would become apprentices or they would work on the farm and they would basically become mini adults, junior adults who helped out around a business or around an agricultural institution. But then today in the modern day, you need so much education to do a job. You need so much specialization and knowledge to do a lot of jobs today that we can't just take teenagers and put them into the wider workforce without letting them go through high school and college, et cetera. And so we need some place, like you said, to, to house them, to, to keep them busy. And so the school system optimizes for how do we keep somebody busy for eight hours a day while their parents are at work, rather than what's actually the best way to, for somebody to learn a lot of knowledge. And so he says the school system is basically just a way of housing young people as if they're prisoners so that they don't cause trouble, don't make headaches for their parents and let their parents go to work instead of actually making sure they're educated. Yeah, no, that, and I think that does resonate a lot. I think that the fact is that if you have great teachers in high school, then maybe you will have an opportunity to really learn and be engaged. But I think the vast majority of American students are essentially in a box 
during the day so that they are not on the streets. And that is the primary actual benefit of high school rather than, you know, the true education. A lot of kids get educated, but I think it's much more so due to their own effort and interest than it is, you know, what's happening during those eight hours. This chapter sucked. (laughs) Why do you feel that way? Basically, he's arguing that nerds aren't popular because they don't try to be popular. Did I understand that correctly? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. They're too, they're like too good for that. They're interested in other things. So before I get into why that's wrong, what does it mean to be popular? I think to be popular means to have a lot of friends for people to generally like you. I feel like the really strong counter example, two strong counter examples to his argument would be Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, because they're both clearly nerds and they both put like an enormous amount of like money and time in attempting to be popular. And it fails miserably, no? Yeah, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg really wanted to be popular. That's why he created some of his original predecessors to Facebook while he was at Harvard. He, he wanted to, he was really into the popularity contest and trying to find a way to, I guess, manipulate the system to make himself more popular. So I, I would agree with that, that. But like, even to this day, you know, the guy gives like $100 million to a hospital and everyone's just like, nerd. <laughs> right. To me, so unlikable, and I feel I feel like the fundamental reason why he's not liked is because he just seems really fake. Yeah, because he's trying too hard. Nobody's right. cool who tries too hard. And also, I don't think that... I think that the fundamental gap here is actually acting ability, right? Like, I think that that's the thing that you could be a nerd who's trying to be popular, and if you have no ability to act in the way that popular people act, then you are going to completely fail, even if that's what you're trying to do. I think that if you truly are a good actor, you could make yourself seem more like the average popular jock, act like you really care about football, even if you don't, whatever those types of things. And I think you can, you know, integrate into the the popular clique. It doesn't mean you're going to be the, you know, class president, most popular person in the school, whatever, that kind of thing. But I do think it's definitely possible for smart people to act like they're less smart and to have that have a positive impact on their on their social, you know, well-being in high school. I think I definitely saw it in my school. What if popularity is more often determined by the level of power you have and the reason why nerds become in a sense popular later in life is because they acquire more power? I think there's definitely an element of that. I recently watched a video from the 1950s on YouTube about how to not be a social outcast for young people. And they said, well, you know, this person's beautiful, so they're naturally not a social outcast. And this person's family is rich, so they're (laughs) naturally not a social outcast. And then they had this this young man from a poor family, and they're like, well, he has a shining personality. So he makes up for it, and he gets accepted by the group. And you need to be willing to do that too, or you need to be comfortable with being alone. So in other words, you can have natural things such as being powerful, being rich, being beautiful, that will automatically make you popular. And if you're not one of those things, you need to go and either be comfortable with being different or you need to make up for it with personality. Kopech, were you a nerd in grade school, high school, college? I would say not in grade school, high school, and not as much as I could have been in college. I actually, I was really into computers growing up, but I didn't tell anybody. except for a few select people. I was really careful about that because I was afraid, actually, of being labeled a nerd. In fact, that's probably why I didn't even study as my main major in college, computer science, because I did not want to be labeled a nerd. So I probably, I was pretty on the the spectrum of like nerd to not nerd. I was definitely like probably 50% there, 
but I was very careful to like hide it so that people I would hope wouldn't know. And I was, I don't know, I wasn't like the most popular person or something in high school, but I had a lot of friends and, you know, I, I got along with everybody. So I, I wouldn't call myself a nerd in high school now. I think the distinction probably really is like, do you feel like you were like actively bullied and harassed? I think that probably is the real like dividing line to some extent. And like someone was insulted at some point, but like there's that versus there's the nerd who on like a regular basis is whatever getting, I mean, my, I went to a private school, so there wasn't a lot of like physical attacks or anything like that, but you know, ridicule and things like that. Right. Maybe like you said, once in a while, everyone gets bullied a little bit, but no, I wouldn't say that it was like a major problem in my life. How about you, Molson? I don't think I was a nerd, but I think that people thought I was a weird cat. Yeah, I'd say the same about myself. People thought I was probably a little, uh, what's the word? Different. Different. <laughs> or what, what's the other word for that? Uh, with eccentric. An e? Eccentric. People thought I was eccentric for sure. Yeah. And Molson, you're pretty tall, so that probably helps. Even if you have like, you could probably play basketball to some extent, whatever, those sorts of social signifiers that help, even if people are like, why did that guy say that? <laughs> I actually have kind of an interesting story on this, which was my high school has a program where between eighth grade and ninth grade. So I went to the same school from from fifth grade to 12th grade. In that summer, we go on a eight day backpacking trek through the Pecos, appropriately titled the Pecos Experience. And so you go on a group of I think it was probably 10 or 12. And it's an eight day backpacking trek, which is pretty intense. I think we were probably going, I don't know, five miles a day, something like that. So not like a crazy distance, but a decent amount. And a lot of these kids had absolutely no real backpacking experience. The school does have like a fifth grade, a sixth grade, a seventh grade, an eighth grade trip, but these are much shorter and not really backpacking, more just camping. And I think in the eighth grade one, maybe we did do one day of, of true hiking to try and prepare the kids for, for that system. But anyway, my group had like a complete Lord of the Flies like breakdown where there was clearly a group of like popular jocks, whatever, and nerds. And there was this one kid in the, the nerd group who everyone had like an assigned chore and it was supposed to rotate. So everyone had to do, you know, the crappy things like cleaning things and the more fun things like cooking or whatever in equitable split. But this one kid really liked making fires. So he was like, my job should just be making fires. And all of the jocks were like, no, like making fires is pretty fun. Like you don't get to shirk cleaning the dishes because you want to make the fire again. If you want to make the fire, fine, but you still have to clean the dishes when it's your turn. And this became this whole like battle where the nerds were all like lined up together and the jocks were, you know, fighting back. And they actually decided to split the group and have two different groups where we did our own cooking and cleaning and whatever separately made our own fires because there was just so much turmoil. And they divided the groups and then they actually told me that I could choose which group I wanted to be with because I always was just friends with everyone. Like I could get along with the jock guys fine, but I also whatever read sci-fi and had other things that you know were interesting to the nerds. And so I you know, definitely chose the jocks rather than the nerds on the wilderness adventure because that was, you know, the socially better thing to do. And frankly, I thought that the nerd was completely wrong. I was like, no, you don't get to make a fire every day instead of having to do the dishes. I don't want to do the dishes. I'll make the fire instead. So anyway, I thought that was funny. Let's can move to chapter two. So yeah. I, the only note I have written down here, I don't really remember what he said, was that empathy was the key to success. And I just agreed with that in, in every way. Right. So chapter two is called Hackers and Painters. It is the eponymous essay from the book. So before maybe we get into that specific, why don't we talk about who are the hackers? He talks about there being three different kinds of, 
I, I forget what he what, what was the term computer scientist or something like that. Yeah, three kinds of different people in computer science. Right. The computer science is a bad term, and there are three completely different kinds of groups that are being conflated under one term. There are mathematicians, natural history of computation people that are studying algorithms, and then there are hackers. And he defines those as people who are writing interesting software. So his real definition is that a hacker is building something for people to use, not just you know exploring some sort of research concept or pure math. Right. And we should say to listeners who aren't as familiar with the technology industry that hackers, although it's often used in the general public as a pejorative term, amongst the tech community, hackers often seen as a positive term, somebody who solves problems and builds software to solve problems. What is the relationship then between painters and hackers? Because the, the essay is called Hackers and Painters. So why that comparison? So again, <laughs> I read this a little while ago, so uh, feel free to, to jump in with more detail. But I think that the basic idea was that hackers are creative, actually. What they're trying to do is to do something that no one has ever done before, and that that is closer to creating a painting from scratch than it is to proving an algorithm, and that the approach that you're trying to take of sort of like sketching and drafting and a lot of the actual like practical steps that painters take in developing a piece of art are similar to what good hackers do. The thing that I struggle with here is that, like, I just straight up think this is like a Paul Graham, like, I'm a hacker and I'm a painter, and I think that they're the exact <laughs> same thing. And I don't really think that they're all that, I don't know. Like, I, I honestly think that there is much more of a relationship between hackers and engineers than there is between hackers and painters. I don't know. Like, I, I did, like, I found it really interesting. And I, I really do enjoy reading, you know, PG's articles and stuff, but this felt like one of his philosophical treatises that wasn't as focused on actually building software in the startup world, where I think I think he does a great job on that kind of information. I think he's very insightful there. He's, he's actually done it himself and working at YC has seen it a million times versus I guess he got his philosophy BA at <laughs> Cornell, but I don't really think that he is necessarily brilliant on all other aspects of philosophy and whatnot. And this one felt like a little bit of a, his experience mirrored this. And so he extrapolated it into this like broad trend that I don't know if I, I fully buy into, but what do you think, Molson? So what I think is that Paul Graham has what Charlie Munger calls the shoe button complex. So apparently Charlie Munger had this like friend who made a lot of money selling shoe buttons and then thought that that gave him the right to pontificate on any kind of subject that he wanted to pontificate on as as if to suggest that making money in shoe buttons allows you to know what you're talking about when you're talking about software. And I think that something... It's like kind of a blind spot in Paul Graham's psychology. It seems like he's like, oh, I made like $200 million on Airbnb. Uh, therefore, I must know everything about everything, even high school. Well, I actually agree with Paul Graham that software development is a very creative pursuit. If you do it as a lone hacker, if you're somebody working in a very large company and you're writing to some very specific specification, then it can feel very rote and very very mechanical. But if you're a lone hacker building an indie app, then you really have the ultimate canvas. You, the screen is the ultimate canvas because it can be anything you can imagine. When you're painting on a real canvas, you're limited to by what the oil paints can do and what your artistic eye and motor skills can do. But the computer monitor, the smartphone screen can be anything that you can imagine, any animation, any sound, any interactive element any business logic that you can possibly imagine you can create. So I think indie hackers are actually incredibly creative. They do paint a canvas, so to speak, 
But of course, there's a lot of engineering principles involved there, which is quite different maybe than the type of skills you need for for painting. But I, I like to say that a lot to undergraduate students who are thinking about computer science. I say to them, what can possibly be more creative than creating something literally out of nothing, out of no physical material, but making something useful, powerful, imaginative that other people can use? So I really think that hackers are incredibly creative people when they are set free. 100%. So I do not want to dispute that hackers are creative. That is not the the question. I think the comparison to painters, though, it's, it's just like, sure, I, I agree that it is a creative exercise. And I actually think the point you raised at the beginning about, you know, large company software development versus independent hacker it should be, it's almost like a fourth separate group, right? Like you're, and, I, and maybe he, I guess he did, he probably did break out engineers and whatnot in a, in a certain kind of way. And maybe that's what it would be. It would be an engineer rather than a hacker. But that, I don't know, my sister works for an art gallery and I've met some of her artists and I work at a tech company and I have friends who are independent software developers and stuff. And I honestly think that the software developers I know are a lot more like the engineers that I know and the mathematicians that I know than they are like my sister's artists. Like those like true successful artists in contemporary art oftentimes have, I think, actual, you know, mental illnesses and stuff like that. Like it's, I mean, to, to be able to create something in that field is very different now. I do think to some extent, maybe more like a Florentine artist in the Renaissance or whatever, it was more similar when you were trying to sort of paint for realism and things like that. But I, I don't know. Well, I thought your original point was that comparing hacking to painting, it works in some ways. In some ways, it makes sense. There's some analogies there or whatever. But you can also compare like hacking to potting plants. You can compare hacking to sculpture. You can hear compare hacking to like the game of chess. And so in that way, it's like, yeah, it like kind of works, Paul Graham, but it's not necessarily the best analogy. And like you said, originally, it kind of feels like you're just bringing this up because for whatever reason, it's almost like inscrutable to me. You happen to have a degree in painting. I don't think he does actually have a degree. I think he just studied it a little bit formally, but yeah. All right. All right. Okay. Fair enough. So we don't think, we think it's a okay analogy in some ways, but it's not a perfect analogy. Yeah. And to be fair, I don't remember the details enough. I don't know that he claimed it was a perfect analogy either. He said it was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Actually, I did have a a quote in here that I thought was pretty good from this chapter, though, which was, I found that the best sources of ideas are not the other fields that have the word computer in their names, but the other fields inhabited by makers. Painting has been a much richer source of ideas than the theory of computation. So that, I think, does make sense in, in the like, if you're trying to come up with a new thing to work on studying the history of computation, I do not think that that is a good way to go about that. So I, I think that is a good point that, it, again, it is creative. It's not about understanding, oh, like the transistor led to this and whatever like that, I don't think is the way you figure out what, you know, the next Shopify is. <laughs> did he um, even mention empathy in this chapter? How did I have that for the summary? Well, <laughs> that he does get into that throughout the rest of the book in that the best software people really have soul. You know, if you think about the software that really inspires you. There was somebody with some soul and some vision that really was behind it. If somebody's just super technical, they may be able to create great enterprise software, but they're not going to create great consumer software that really inspires people. What about how little good software comes out of Eastern Europe, despite how many fantastic Eastern European, like computationally, technically fantastic Eastern European programmers there are out there? Is there something to that? 
I don't know if I agree with that. I know of some really fantastic indie apps that have come out of uh, Eastern Europe, and I know about some great game studios from Eastern Europe. So I, I don't know that I agree that they're not Skype. Creating. Yeah, Skype for the, for that matter, right? Not really Eastern Europe, though, right? Like, wasn't that like Lithuania and Sweden? East Estonia, I think. Anyway, in the essay, What You Can't Say, Graham talks about ideas you may have that you might be afraid to actually tell other people about because of how you would be judged once you shared them. Why does he say that this is actually a good thing to have ideas that are so dangerous that they could actually get you in trouble if you shared them? Did he say that it was a good thing or did he say that the people who had those type of ideas were likely to be successful entrepreneurs? Both. I think he says the first, which implies the second. I don't know. And I don't think David is either knows either because he's looking at his notes. Okay. So he's talking about the idea that you probably think something right now that everyone else around you thinks would be offensive, or it might even be something that would get you ostracized by the group. But if you don't think something that would get you ostracized by the group, then you're just an automaton. So if you really agree with everything that everybody else thinks that is proper and okay, that really means that you don't really think for yourself very much at all. That just means that you're, you just go along with what the group thinks, or you just go along with what is appropriate to get by, but you're not really engaging yourself in difficult thinking. You're not engaging yourself in the type of thinking that might lead to exciting new ideas. And so if you're not coming up with things that would be offensive to other people, then you're probably not really stretching your mind enough to actually come up with exciting new ideas. And he's not saying to be offensive. He's very clear about that. He says, you know, does, just because you have these offensive ideas doesn't mean you should share them. You don't want to be ostracized, hated by everybody, whatever. But it's okay to have them and it's good to have them. Just don't share them at inopportune times. Yeah, I think he says the most important thing is to be able to think what you want, not to say what you want. Right. And I actually, I, that I did find very powerful, even though obviously this is very distinct from, you know, any of where he's been successful exactly. But I do think that in our current environment, there's definitely a lot of, you know, PC culture and all that. And I am definitely, it's very antithetical to my feelings about things. But I also do kind of agree with the sentiment too, that if someone's going to be offended by something and I know that, then it's dumb for me to say it just to, you know, prove that I'm beyond what the PC culture says I should do. Like th there's no need to offend someone, but I should be able to think, I don't think that that's right. Even if it is not what I can talk about in a public way. I think Molson, you, you tend to be more willing to just say what you really do believe. And probably it's because you have your own business. So no one, no one can fire you for, for what you think or anything, but yeah. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly right. I wonder how long it'll be before I get taken down for saying something in the past that's not BC. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. He says that these things tend to swing from decade to decade, that there's times when culture becomes very politically correct, then it'll become less politically correct, they'll become more politically correct. So he says, for example, the early 90s were a very, very politically correct time. And then he says, luckily, when he's writing in 2004, it was a less politically correct time. And he was grateful for that. But I agree with what you were saying before, David, that it depends on what size organization you're at. So if you're the owner of a business, then you have to be careful that you don't offend your customers. But if you work in a large organization like you and I both do, then you have to be careful that you don't get fired. And that's a whole other level of risk. And I think you're on a team when you work in an organization. The team has some values. 
And if you don't share those values, well, that's fine to keep to yourself, but you probably don't want to be you know, swimming against the current of the team because that makes you not a team player. And so I actually think you, know, you might agree with 95% of the values of your corporation or your organization, but if you don't agree with those other 5%, I think that's okay. I think you don't need to tell everyone that you don't agree with those other 5% because you don't have to be on that team. Luckily, we live in a free society and you can quit that team anytime. So you're choosing to be on that team well, maybe you should join the team's values uh, for your day-to-day job, but you can still keep your own values in your private life. Pretty reasonable. There's another quote that I liked here, which was, uh, I suspect the biggest source of moral taboos will turn out to be the power struggles in which one side barely has the upper hand. That's where you'll find a group powerful enough to enforce taboos, but weak enough to need them. It it was just like, honestly, a really interesting thing that I had never thought about that like, oh, you're right. Because it's like, well, I mean, to be fair, there are certainly some... PC culture now, I think, has actually kind of fundamentally changed where there is like this, I don't know, it really does feel like uniformity of if anyone says like that's offensive, then the entire group of people who are offended about anything like advocate for that person's right to not be offended about the thing that they are. And so I I do think that's changing a little bit with that dynamic where there is this like the groups are all supporting each other. And so it does expand what the, you know, the taboos become. But the reality is, I don't think that those things are really taboo. Right now, they're just offensive. And so the, the taboos do tend to be more of the, you know, getting to power, but not, not quite there. Okay. In the next essay, Good Bad Attitude, Graham talks about a relationship between civil liberties and wealth. Let me read a quote from page 54. Civil liberties are not just an ornament or a quaint American tradition. Civil liberties make countries rich. If you make a graph of GNP per capita versus civil liberties, you'd notice a definite trend. Could civil liberties really be a cause rather than just an effect? I think so. I think a society in which people can do and say what they want will also tend to be one in which the most efficient solutions win rather than those sponsored by the most influential people. Okay, do you agree or disagree with that statement? And I think we have an obvious counterexample in the world. I generally like the idea, but obviously China is succeeding a lot with a very authoritarian regime. So will they continue to forever? I don't know. Like, I do think that freedom does inspire, you know, progress. And I do think that the ability to say what you want and all of those things are important for innovation and whatnot. So, I mean, some of it certainly is coming out of China, even in an authoritarian regime. But I think a lot of that is because they had relaxed a lot of the authoritarianism. And it feels like now they're using a lot of technology to ramp up the authoritarianism to, in some ways, a a greater extreme than existed in in previous ways. In some ways, obviously, the catastrophes of the Cultural Revolution and whatnot are worse than than where we are right now, but it is definitely very scary where we are now. Let me pose an odd question. Is China's environment when it comes to free speech really all that oppressive compared to the United States? So, like, perhaps in China, I can't say uh, Xi Jinping is bad or the Communist Party is bad. And in China, if I do say something like that, maybe I'll get thrown in jail. But in the United States, it's difficult to talk about sex. It's difficult to talk about, you know, sex as in gender. You can't talk about trans people one way or another way. I don't even know. You can't talk about race. And so in a lot of ways, we're kind of like boxed in as well. So there's a big difference between not being able to say something because you'd go to jail and not being able to say something because you'd be ostracized by society. You can say whatever you want in the United States. You won't go to jail. You might lose customers, and maybe you should. If you say something you know, really offensive, then isn't that a natural check 
by society saying we want to keep a polite society and a certain level of decorum so that all people feel included. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to allow new ideas in there because you still can say them and you still can have a platform if you want to. So the first thing in my mind, the quintessential example of this is Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has some, I don't know what you want to call it, like oppressive or backwards or just wrong. Or if you're a fundamental Christian, right views on homosexuality. But Chick-fil-A is the fastest growing food chain, uh, fast food chain in America. So, you know, even gay people eat there. And so at the end of the day, it's a little bit unlike being fired in that if you sell good chicken, even if your views are oppressive or whatever, people will buy your product. Well, I think in that case, there was actually the opposite stuff happened. So on the one hand, people who were offended by their, I, I don't actually even remember what they did exactly, but they clearly, you know, are very, I think they're Mormon, actually, I don't know, they're very, they're very Christian in some way. And they do not like gay marriage. And so they said, let's boycott them because they don't like gay marriage. And then there was actually the opposite effect where Fox News published this a lot. And there was a like, let's go eat chicken because, you know, they believe in Christianity or whatever move. And they actually on the day that the boycott launched, they saw like a 20% increase in their sales, I think, or something like that. So I mean, in this case, there was, there is a countervailing group that could be driving it. I, I don't know if a lot of gay people are going to Chick-fil-A. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But I do know that when one side says, like, let's boycott this thing, that does not mean that it will succeed. There needs to be, you know, broad-based support. And I think they're in the case of gay marriage, it's actually like a pretty 50-50 thing in America still, where there is still a lot of people who very adamantly feel the other way. But they have stores in places like New York City, Boston. They're increasingly expanding into like liberal areas where their views are viewed as really unfavorable. And they're succeeding, right? But it's been a pretty long time since that was big in the news and stuff, too. Honestly, I wonder how many of the people that are going there in New York even remember that that was a big deal, you know, whatever it was a couple years ago. What about Uber? Yeah, I actually stopped using Uber because I was annoyed by them and... Then they launched a rewards program that made it a better offering than, than Lyft. And I switched back. So, you know, offer the best product and I probably will keep using you. And what the Uber CEO recently said about Saudi Arabia and like comparing the murder of a journalist to the bad things that the U.S. government has done, but acting as if those were, were similar or, or similar to what Uber had done in terms of, you know, trying to, to change their reputation. It just seemed insane and dumb. And I don't know, I certainly... If I had a lot of Uber stock, I would have sold on that kind of information because it just seems like you've got a completely incompetent CEO in charge who certainly shouldn't be talking to the public. But I did not stop using the product, to be honest. People care more about themselves than they care about being politically correct. Hmm. That's a great soundbite. <laughs> nice way to leave that essay off. Okay, on the next essay, in the other road ahead, Graham espouses the benefits of web apps over native apps. Now, keep in mind that he's writing this book in 2004 which was before the iPhone launched in 2008 with the 2007, 2008 with the app store launching in 2008. So this is before native apps became the de facto standard in the mobile world. So, but he's saying at the time back in 2004, web apps have all these various benefits over native apps. And at the time when he says native apps, he means mainly desktop apps. So what are those benefits? Flexibility. So, you know, with a web app, obviously, you know, anyone with a browser can access it. I mean, having dealt with development of web software, that is certainly not the case. There are issues where you may have coded something and it works in one browser, but there are problems that come up because of some, you know, 
particular way that another browser reads the information. But in general, you have a lot more flexibility. You don't, you're not locked into, you know, if the customer has to have this one OS downloaded, they can have anything and it can still be flexible and available. I think the distinction is that with the iPhone, it just fundamentally changed things where everyone's OS was getting op- updated automatically. Everyone did kind of have a lot more of the same technology. And so it was a lot easier to actually have a captive audience that's much, much, much bigger than the desktop audience ever was. So I think I think that's the other like big difference, right? It's just mobile computing devices are an order of magnitude or probably multiple orders of magnitude bigger than the PC market was. And so you can have a very large group that can use your software even if it does have to be, you know, iPhone specific. Also, of course, apps in the Google Play Store, the Apple App Store auto update, which is one of the big benefits that that Graham espouses about web apps is that you have some new update, you can instantly push it out to all your users. You don't quite get that in the mobile app stores because you're, it's possible your users turn off auto updates or it might take a couple days for their auto update to push through, but you get close to that. It's a great point. And frankly, it's just... High-speed internet is like a fundamental thing that people didn't really have in 2004 that has fundamentally changed things. So yeah, all of those desktop updates were you're buying a new piece of software or someone is physically sending you a CD in order to, you know, do the update. And that is clearly not where we are now, regardless of, you know, even with with desktop software, you can still, you know, update it via the web much more easily. This chapter was extremely impressive to me. It made me think more highly of Paul Graham, but it also kind of made for poor reading because his prediction, which he was right about, had already happened. Right. I mean, web apps were eating desktop apps lunch until the mobile revolution when native mobile apps really started to then eat both of their lunch. So it's still something that's debated quite a bit in the tech industry. There's a lot of people who are pro mobile web apps. So The idea being that they don't like the walled gardens that the app stores provide. They want the greater freedom that comes with not having to distribute through Apple or through Google. But the truth is that most consumers prefer native mobile apps over mobile web apps. How much do you think of that can be attributed to the difficulty of creating a shortcut on like your kind of your phone's home screen for a web app? Well, let's not forget that that's actually how the iPhone originally worked. So when the iPhone came out in 2007, there were no native apps. There were only web apps that could be saved to your home screen. So you could go to a page in Safari. You could press a little button on the bottom of Safari that said, save this as a a web app on my home screen. Then developers demanded so much that they wanted to build native apps that the App Store came out a year later in June 2008. So a year after the iPhone originally launched, we got the first public native app store. So it was really developers that demanded that we have uh, ability to build native apps. Now, yeah, there's a lot of pros and cons both ways. Let me just mention that one of the big pros of native apps is that they have better performance. And when you think about the environment today, and we think about how we want our apps to use as little electricity as possible because we care about the environment, well, nothing running in a JavaScript virtual machine connecting to a server constantly to get new data is ever going to use as little battery life as a well-written native app. So if we care about the environment, and there's a lot of people that talk about this now, we should prefer native apps. That's true, even though the web apps can be processed by a server as opposed to the processor that's on the phone? Well, it's a trade-off. It depends what we're doing in the app, right? So if we're doing some heavy machine learning, for example, and we do it on the server instead of on the device, then yeah, we might have some kind of energy efficiency advantage if it's done in the data center. On the other hand, then we have a privacy disadvantage, right? The native app could possibly be doing all the machine learning on device instead of sharing your data 
with the company behind the app. One thing that I just want to point out here is I think this was a footnote in this chapter. Maybe it was somewhere else, but he literally predicted the iPhone. So he said, if Apple were to grow the iPod into a cell phone with a web browser, Microsoft would be in big trouble. That's one of the footnotes in this book, which is just incredible. Like, great job, PG. <laughs> yeah. You should stick to that and not pontificating about high school. <laughs> Seriously, you should. Okay. So there's a couple essays in the book about wealth and about how wealth is created and also how wealth is distributed. He talks in both the essay, How to Make Wealth, and the essay, Mind the Gap, about the pie fallacy. What is the pie fallacy? The idea that in order for someone to become rich, someone else needs to become poor. Zero-sum game versus, you know, everyone's everyone's growing. So. so here Graham is arguing that in order to create an overall wealthy society, you have to let the wealth creators keep a portion of their wealth. Otherwise, they don't have an incentive to create it in the first place. Yeah, and this is incredibly relevant right now with all the sort of billionaire attacks going on. You know, I think we're all fairly uh, free market on these kinds of things. So I think we, we mostly agree that, you know, innovators should be able to to capture a lot of the, the value for what it is that they're delivering to people. And I thought this was very well put. In. The thing that he didn't mention, and I was really confused by this, is that not all wealth is created equal, no pun intended. So, for example, like you have Steve Jobs. And then you have kind of in the middle, maybe a hedge fund guy who's not creating as much wealth for society as Steve Jobs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who's making money off of regulatory capture, maybe like Eric Prince at Blackwater, who, you know, has a family that's super politically connected. Yeah, that's a great point. I, there are certainly better and worse ways to make your money. And I think getting the government to pay you to kill people is not a good way to do it. But the hatred of people that are successful and the belief that somehow they are taking that from other people, I think is actually becoming more common right now. And I think it is like a scary thing for the future of America. The idea that, you know, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, launch this great thing is like, that is the American dream. And the fact that now we're saying like billionaires shouldn't exist or, oh, Bill Gates doesn't want a hundred billion in taxes. And like, he's getting like slammed for that. It's just crazy to me. Like, how can you possibly think that, taking away all of the money from people that have created things that were incredibly useful to people would not in any way impact the desire for people to go do that in the future. It's the idiocy of youth and the idiocy of people who haven't really worked for a living yet. I don't think it's just youth, though. I don't know. At least on Twitter, I see a lot of gray hairs on there with, with that position. I mean, it, it is just kind of the, I mean, most of the Democratic politicians who are running right now are you know, quite aggressively liberal. And so they have developed, you know, fans across the spectrum. Obviously, they are supported more by, you know, younger people than older people, though. So it is a good point. It's definitely, I think a college student is much more likely to have that feeling, or frankly, probably not because they they haven't really struggled. So in some ways, they probably don't worry that much about like, oh, I've, I'm getting, you know, passed over because of the billionaire. It's probably more, you know, the person with the minimum wage job, or, you know, they've been struggling for a while, and they haven't really seen success. And they see that the CEO of their company is making all this money and they feel like, hey, I'm I'm doing something for that too. And it's like, well, you are, you certainly are contributing, but you could be replaced very easily. Well, maybe he could be to some extent, but probably not nearly as easily. The way I see it, they're really attacking the wrong problem. The problem is not that some people are rich. The problem is that a lot of people are poor. And the solution for the problem that a lot of people are poor is not to not make anyone rich. And that's the point of Paul Graham's essay is that 
people become rich because they want to become rich. And so they try really, really hard to become rich and create a lot of value for society in so doing. And by taking that away, all that value, we're actually just going to make everyone more poor because there's going to be nobody creating that value. So let's find ways to make poor people richer, not try to find ways to make rich people poorer, because that will actually have the opposite effect of actually making poor people even poorer. Right. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I might differ with you guys a little bit. I'd like to see some more laws and enforcement to restrict how some of the fortunes in this country are made because not everyone is Steve Jobs and not everyone in the process of creating wealth creates great wealth for all of society. I totally agree with you. And it made me really sad, actually, when we graduated from college and a lot of our friends went into iBanking. And they will say, oh, we're making the market more liquid, but we're helping uh, make credit available to people who need it. But here were some brilliant minds that could have been invested in creating wealth and instead were invested in trading wealth. And I think that's really sad. And I don't respect it as much as a profession as, say, an entrepreneur or a product manager or even somebody who works in a factory, frankly. Uh, I think there's something much more honorable in making something new or producing something that other people will use rather than trading around banknotes that other people have already created the wealth for. Uh, Yeah, so part of the problem is that recently we've deindustrialized our nation and we've financialized it. We've seen the financialization of America and that has contributed to the sentiment that a lot of these gains are ill-gotten. And some of the gains are ill-gotten. Yeah, they are. Absolutely. So you said that you think that there should be more regulation to prevent these kinds of things. Like what what does that mean? Like, I obviously don't support Blackwater. I don't support uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people who've made a lot of money that I don't necessarily love the way that they've done it. But like hedge funds, for instance, whether or not I respect that as much as Steve Jobs, obviously, I don't. I don't think that there's a regulation that I would think would make any sense about how you would prevent that. So what what is it that you're thinking? I mean, Quite simply, I'm not prepared to answer your question. I really need to think about it for a long time. So I'm kind of grasping at straws here, which makes it sound like my idea is bad, but it's probably not. There are probably some like really narrow areas where we could tackle, you know, so there's the Tullock paradox where you can donate a rather small money to a small amount of money to a government official who has a lot of power. And in the process, you can gain an, an enormous amount of wealth yourself. And we probably need some like campaign finance reform and stuff like that in order to cut this down. But yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we need like a new regulatory body that like decides whether or not that rich person is a good rich person and the other rich person isn't. Billionaire panels. (laughs) I mean, there's definitely some like weird, semi-functional, semi-accepted corruption in our society. And we should probably take that on somehow. But the level of it still might be lower than most other societies. And so, like you said before, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't want to go over-regulate and then accidentally lose some of the wealth creators along with some of the people who are just doing regulatory capture. Another question related to this that Graham brings up is the difference between wealth and money. What is that difference? So he says wealth isn't money. Money is a means of exchanging wealth, but you can create wealth by building anything of value. Which was, I, th- I think, actually a, a really interesting concept, too. I hadn't thought about in that way. Obviously, 
you could think about it in some tangible ways, like you have a plot of land and then you put, you know, seeds into it and, you know, you may not have generated any money at that point. You could sell that for money or you could just eat the food yourself, but you've, you know, generated additional wealth regardless. Yeah. A good example he gives is fixing up a car. So you have some old car that really could be valuable if somebody would take the time to turn it into something that other people want to sell. Maybe you spend a summer doing that. Now, that car did not just appear out of thin air ready for other people to buy it. You put the work in over that summer to make it worth something. And so now that you created wealth, it's not like somebody gave you some money to rehab the car. You rehabbed it yourself. You just made wealth out of thin air. So it is possible when we create new things or in this case, rehabilitate an old thing to actually create new wealth that didn't exist and didn't just come from somebody giving you some money. Yeah, I think it's accurate. I think that the ability to make something that's valuable, whether or not it's just improving something very simple like an old car or it's developing the Walkman, clearly is building your wealth regardless of whether you've actually like started to sell it. Okay, one of the last essays in the book that's not related to programming languages is called Taste for Makers. What's Graham's point in Taste for Makers? So in Taste for Makers, my main takeaway was that Graham was arguing that there is such thing as a non-subjective concept of taste. And the way that he defined it was kind of using Einstein's quote, if I remember correctly, as simple as possible, but no simpler. Yeah, he had a, he had a number of different ideas. So I think there's another one about For those of us who design things, these are not just theoretical questions. If there is such a thing as beauty, we need to be able to recognize it. We need good taste to make good things. And then good design is timeless. You want to make something that will appeal to future generations. One way to do it is to try to appeal to past generations. It's hard to guess what the future will be like, but we can be sure it will be like the past in carrying nothing for present fashions. So if you can make something that appeals to people today and would have appealed to people in 1500, there's a good chance it will appeal to people in 2500. I thought he had a lot of good little like heuristics on on good design here, which I was frankly a little bit surprised about because like the PG website is pretty terrible design in my opinion. But I do think design is super important. And I, I think he makes a very good point, which is that a lot of hackers, in my experience, especially the engineers that I work with at my office, just do not care about design. Like they really think that as long as it does what it's supposed to do, then like that should be fine. And I really have to hammer home to them that we have you know, thousands of people using the software and they'll use it more efficiently if it actually looks and feels good and they won't hate us as much if it looks you know, intuitive and they won't have to reference some guide in order to understand how to do it. And I work with designers in order to try to get there. Frankly, I wish I had a, a full-time designer to help me out because I don't think I'm that great at it, but I, I do my best and try to share designs with the um, users who fortunately are in my office and I can go go talk to every day. But I do see that a lot. And I think it's a very common hacker mentality that it's sort of a, oh, it does the thing, like that's fine, right? As opposed to, oh, what's the best way to present this? What's the simplest way? Let's strip away things. Let's not add just like another click box or drop down in order to do that thing. Maybe we can abstract it away or only show it to the user when they really need it. Those kinds of things seem kind of simple when you see it, but it takes a lot of effort to, to think it through and strip away the unnecessary. He had a really good solution to the problem you just described in an earlier chapter. He said that you wanted to locate your developers near the customer service team. We actually do that to some extent. We do sit pretty close to, to who our users are, 
but they don't actually talk to each other. So I think that's something that I want to work on more. So I have started to have uh, demo sessions where the developers can actually show the software that they just developed to the users and get some of that real-time feedback so that even though they sit near each other, they haven't really been talking, try to sort of force those conversations a little Didn't bit more. Didn't you say that they should sometimes do the customer service themselves as well? He did. And fundamentally, they do kind of. I mean, I guess it's, it's more on me. Like, I take in the bug tickets that get submitted and enhancement requests, and then I do work with the engineers to refine them and say, you know, how much work would it take to make this change that they're requesting? And then we, I ultimately make the call on, okay, well... This seems like it's very valuable to the user and it's only going to take a day of work. Like, let's go after it. Or this seems like this would help like this one person and it's going to take a day of work. Like, I, I still don't care. We're not going to do it, even if it's not that hard. What I would suggest is I would like literally have your developers like spend an hour on the phone with that person who can't figure out how to add a cabinet to the buy box, uh, to the, the cart, not the buy box. Yeah, By the way, no, it's, I, a, it's a good idea. I recently bought a toy for my nephew on viaheart.com and I found it very easy to navigate and well-designed. Thanks for the compliment about our website. I still think it requires much improvement. We didn't actually design it. It's a big commerce off-the-shelf website. The way I learned these lessons was I, a long time ago, designed my own websites and I would bring my laptop to Starbucks and I would ask people to like add products to cart and stuff like that and they just couldn't do it. And I would watch them struggle like over and over again. They just couldn't get through the checkout process. And I was like, wow, if 70% of the people can't navigate my own website, then I really need to make it simpler and dial it down. And, you know, unless you're like a weirdo and willing to do that, it's hard to learn that lesson. Well, I was able to order the stuffed goat pretty easily. So it seems like that might have paid off a little bit. But since you're using an off-the-shelf platform, how much customizability are you really enabled? You can, I guess you can make a theme, right? Yeah, that's about it. You can just pick your theme. Okay. How did you choose the software to use? I made that decision in 2013. And at the time, it was just like, well, big commerce is like $40 cheaper than Shopify. And then <laughs> it's just like kind of like company. And that was honestly my guess was that big commerce was cheaper. But I was just curious. And if, if you were to do it now, would you probably do Shopify just because it's so much more well known or what? I, I honestly don't know what the distinctions are and what's available on one versus the other. But. Yeah, if I were to do it now, I would probably choose Shopify. But the problem is like our website's integrated with all this other stuff and our website like accounts for less than 0.5% of our sales. So it just doesn't really make sense Not worth to make the there. change. You should also consider ViaWeb. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know about ViaWeb when you made the name ViaHeart? No, I didn't even know about ViaWeb till this podcast. Yeah, I don't think I did either. I think I I read it at some point. Like, oh, that's I, I think I just newly done Yahoo Store. I don't think I'd even heard the Via Web. Uh... Yeah, it's Yahoo Shopping Tech, not Yahoo Store. But anyway, so the last third of the book is dedicated to essays about programming languages. Now, I'll just cut in here and say that I thought the last third of the book was really not that relevant, probably to a lot of readers. So the the book feels a little disjointed to me in that the first two thirds of it really could be read by anyone with kind of general interest in the technology industry and maybe in business in general. And then the last third of the book is really only relevant to software developers. So people who actually do programming for a living or regularly do programming at least would really get much out of the last third of the book. That said, what does Graham feel is the best programming language and why does he feel that way? So the first thing I want to say is that Paul Graham literally wrote an entire chapter about how if you want to make like a good product and good art, you want your product to appeal to like 
generations 500 years ago and maybe like generations 200 years ago. And then he proceeded to write this book that was like very contemporaneous and just like focused on what it was like to be in 2004. So he broke his own principles, which I find amusing. I think one of the reasons for that might be that he got a contract with O'Reilly to publish a set of his essays, right? And I bet he just didn't have enough essays to hit that magic 200 page mark that most technical publishers expect before they'll publish your book. So I bet he had 150 pages and he needed another 70 pages. And that's why the last third of the book not only doesn't feels disjointed, but it also feels pretty repetitive. Like he chose essays that mention the same thing about various programming languages over and over again. So I think that this might have been a bit of a rush job at the end. Touche. Good point. And you would know as a uh, publisher or writer of many books with uh, similar such publishers. His favorite computer language or programming language is Lisp, and I just tuned all of it out. So the reason he likes Lisp is that he considers Lisp the most powerful of programming languages. In Lisp and Lisp-like languages, data is code and code is data. And what that means is the same format that you actually write the code in is the same format that you actually might do data processing in or actually processing of the code in. So the interpreter for the programming language can actually be manipulated at a very high level because you can manipulate the code itself. Sometimes that's called metaprogramming, where you're programming to change the programming. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I know how to, I actually know how to program and I'm not like terrible at it. And I have like a degree in math and there's some similarities between like proofs by induction and for loops. Like I'm really not bad. And I've hacked some things together that actually work and make money. I know Python, but this is just kind of like above me. And uh, how popular is Lisp today? Not very popular, but it goes all the way back to the 1950s. So it was one of the first high-level programming languages. It was originally invented for kind of what you would call AI research in the late 50s by a guy named McCarthy. And it's existed in some form or another now all the way for the last 60 years. So it definitely has its adherents. It has its devotees. There's many different dialects of it. But is it a mainstream programming language or is it a mainstream family of programming languages? Absolutely not. But it certainly has inspired all the mainstream languages in one way or another. Doesn't he spend a lot of time kind of insulting or saying why Java's bad and today isn't Java and JavaScript are maybe like two out of three of the top programming languages used? Yeah, he absolutely does. And he says popularity is not a virtue and that it's basically the business people getting people to use Java because Java was already one of the top programming languages in the world in 2004 when he wrote this. And JavaScript but, was already the main front end language for the web. But like, is that correct? So the more people who use a programming language, the more people who post like stupid questions on Stack Overflow and the more people are like able to answer them, which allows more people to learn that language to a higher degree of confidence. So is the idea that popularity isn't relevant for programming languages even right? He does acknowledge actually that specifically. Like, he, so he, he goes through, I don't remember the exact framework that he developed, but he did talk about libraries. And I, I don't know if he, he probably didn't talk about Stack Overflow because it probably wasn't a thing in 2004, mm -hmm. but he, do, he did talk about libraries specifically and how clearly like more used languages are more useful for that reason. But a lot of what I took away from it was this sort of tree and branch, you know, concept that he had on languages that he thought, you know, you should be. If you're creating a new programming language, you should always assume that it's going to sort of go away. 
but that it should be going down the path towards the future. And so like that's sort of his opinion about Java is not necessarily that it's not being used a lot and people haven't made lots of money by using Java, but that it is it's a branch that's gone off down this bad path. It's clearly not the it's not where people will be 50 years from now. And so if you're going to use a language, you should learn things that are sort of on the core that are sort of going to be going towards where the future of programming is. I honestly don't know enough about programming to really like understand this all that well. I did still find it interesting to read it, but I would agree that it was the least uh, accessible portion of the book. And actually, Kopech, do you know much about ARC? Isn't, is not is it like yeah, a, so it's a just a dialect of Lisp. And he's now working on a new, he just announced it actually last month that he's, in, he's working on a new dialect of Lisp called Bell. So he, he's still trying to keep the Lisp torch alive. And don't get me wrong, there are people who are really, really into Lisp. In fact, I teach a class in Clojure, which is a dialect of Lisp. So it's not like Lisp is not a thing, but I think that he is wrong that Java was the end of an evolutionary branch in that the technologies that Java is built on, such as the JVM, the Java Virtual Machine, there's newer programming languages like Kotlin, uh, like Clojure, which is a dialect of Lisp that run on it. So I, I don't think that Java is going to just be the, the end of the evolution of the technologies behind Java. Okay, so he was wrong even on his fundamental premise then. <laughs> I, I, I would certainly not uh, venture that myself, but given that you are a professor that focuses on this stuff, I definitely do trust your opinion on it. Well, I think he makes a lot of good points. I think one thing that I really took away was how using the right programming language can be a competitive advantage. And he thinks that using Lisp was a huge competitive advantage for ViaWeb because they could get more done faster with less people because they chose that, that technological path. So he says you should always choose the most powerful programming language you can. That that should always, unless you have some very specific market reason for choosing something else, always choose the most powerful programming language you have available to you because you'll be able to do this thing like metaprogramming, where you create macros or you create some way of manipulating the code so that the code almost writes parts of itself itself. Uh, so that you save yourself some time, do as let the computer do as much work as possible, so you as the human do as little work as possible. Choosing. That, that sounds great. And he actually does, he does even call it out himself that it's like when you're in a small company, you can make these choices. When you're in a bigger company, you know, you need to be able to, to deal with it. But like, yeah, I, I do work at a bigger company and you do need to be able to hire other engineers to be able to work with your code. And it just sounds like Lisp would be a lot more difficult to do that. And I think he's, he's right that if you're a one or two person team, you should choose whatever you're going to be able to move as fast as you possibly can with. I think that is the right choice. But I think when you go from a one or two person team to even like a 10 or 15 person team, I think you probably should choose something that you think you're going to be able to hire future people and you don't have to you know, start over and train them in a new language in order to be able to get them to look at the code. I think that's definitely true. And I would say a lot of his points that he makes about Lisp are actually what led to Python being as popular as it is today. So Python is not the fastest language. It is not the most powerful in terms of having every feature in the book, but it is the most powerful in terms of letting you do the most with the least code because it has such a rich library ecosystem, because its syntax is so succinct, and because it is simply a very high-level language, a language where you can write something in a few lines of code that might be 20 or 30 lines of code in C or C++, for example. So I think Python actually became what he was proposing as, you know, this ultimate power language. Ironically, though, but it depends how you define power, because if you define power in terms of performance, that's not Python. Yeah, 
And Python seems like it's along the trunk of the tree. Things always tend to like gravitate towards the simplest, uh, cleanest, most elegant, beautiful, whatever. And Python, at least to me, I'm not as knowledgeable as Copec about it, but it seems to be in that way. In terms of like starting a startup, choosing the right programming language, choosing the perfect programming language is not necessary. It's not sufficient in the sense that it's not going to create your success if you like pick closure over Lisp or Lisp over Java, and it can be fatal. So I really don't like his advice here. I think you should just go with something that you're pretty sure is going to work. Everyone uses it and you know you can hire for it. Well, you, you are the pointy haired, that's what he calls it, the pointy haired business person that he criticizes in, in those I'm two not chapters. At all, though. But the way you just described it, you are. So that, that's no, exactly what he says not that to That guy's do. a middle manager. I'm someone with skin in the game. That's true. But I mean, he, I he says I'm not just going with. Getting fired. He says, go with what you can move quickly with, not with what you can think you might be able to hire with great, like, you know, a few years from now, because this is the team you have right now when you're doing a startup and you want to he get as sold his company in two years. So he never had to actually deal with like right, it being a real company. It's like, I totally agree when you're a one or two person team, absolutely do that. Go for it. But I, I do think there is like a gap of like, are you going to sell in two years? Or are you going to sell in 10? I think I made the same point on one of our other podcasts. I don't remember what it was about. But the ability to go for two years on like the thing that you're the best at and you've got one friend who can do it with you, 100% go for it. But if you're starting to scale and you're not just going to sell after a couple of years, like you're going to have to have more engineers. And if none of them like that language or want to code in it, it's going to end up being a problem. How did he even integrate Yahoo Shopping or via web into Yahoo if it was written in a different he, he actually talks Yahoo. about it. They converted it to C++, but they actually just wrote some like compiler. I don't, I don't, I don't remember the technical details enough, but they, they just took the original language and just straight converted it into C++. So in other words, all this, this amazing programming decision in the end was wasted. But it allowed them to move quickly when they were building the startup. I think that's ridiculous. I think that the fact that he's basically a genius who predicted how how spam should be filtered the creation of the iphone and he had this other genius guy named robert morris and he even foresaw like basically web apps cloud computing all that stuff that's what made them win not lisp he also he talks about how he kept it a secret he wouldn't tell anyone and that robert morris was just like if anyone else knew the value of lisp they would be working in it anyway or whatever it's like so it's like i don't know it was sort of a like he, he thinks it's the secret weapon, and I think the secret weapon was PG and Robert Morris, not yeah, not Lisp. I think his point about libraries being important is even more true today than it was back when he was writing this, because the open source movement has continued to flourish. And if you're working in Lisp today and you don't have, let's say, a really great web backend library, right, then actually working in maybe a less powerful language like Ruby or something, which he likes Ruby, or Python that have Django and Ruby on Rails, is actually going to be more powerful in the long run because you have those that beautiful library ecosystem that's going to start you building from floor 10 and start starting to build from the ground floor. So I, I think today having this huge library ecosystem for a lot of languages trumps having a more powerful language in some ways. He made a really fantastic point that we didn't cover in the podcast. And that point was that computer power is increasingly becoming cheap whereas developers are increasingly becoming expensive. So it really makes sense to use a language like Python, which you described as slow, but like readable over something that's like fast, but hard to use. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I mean, you should always value developer productivity more than microprocessor productivity, unless your number one goal is for the environment. And we talked about that earlier. Hey, but who cares? <laughs> Some of the stuff you talked about earlier about Lisp, I'm just curious, is it, it didn't sound like it would be very readable if that's the way that it is, is well, written. What turns people off about Lisp is its notorious syntax. So it, everything is parentheses. You end up in this parenthesis hell where you just, you can literally have a line where you have like 10 opening parentheses, one after another, and then you have to remember where to close all of them. And editors, of course, will help you figure out where to close them. But it can be really, really annoying and really frustrating for a beginning programmer to learn Lisp. They so call one of that the problem parentheses. <laughs> yeah. One of the uh, the quotes from earlier in the book was, programs should be written for people to read and only incidentally for machines to execute. So I wonder a little bit about the, like, Lisp is the greatest thing in the world and it's 10 open parentheses in order to... <laughs> no, Python is much more readable than Lisp. No question about it. So we made it to the end of the book. Who would you recommend this book to? No one. Just read the essays on his website. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't think that you need to buy the book. I do think actually every one of the essays is available. So my bad to you guys. I, I made you pay $10 when we could have just read these things for free. But I would say that anyone who wants to start a company, I would definitely recommend reading Paul G's essays in general. Uh, if you're working in the technology space, especially you know software focused, I would say absolutely read it. I would not recommend the last few chapters to anyone that has limited programming experience unless you, I don't know, really enjoy dealing with esoteric details about things that you're going to have to Google in order to understand as you're going through the, uh, the material. But yeah, that would be my, my deal. I agree. There's no need to buy the book. Just go to the website and read them for free. Kopech, would you recommend it for painters? I don't think I'd recommend it for painters. I'd, I'd recommend it the first two thirds of it for people who are into the technology business. And I'd recommend the last one third of it to people who have a deep interest in programming languages, not even your average software developer, but basically people who have a deep interest in programming languages. That last one third might be interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. My caveat was off. It's not just <laughs> not you know deep engineering, but actually specific focus on, on programming language. Okay, so next month we plan to read Ogilvy on Advertising by David Ogilvy. Molson, this was your pick. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the book? Well, I'm only like 20 pages into it, but it seems really exciting so far. David Ogilvy was and is a pretty famous uh, advertising executive who started his own advertising firm. And the book is just beautiful. It's got like all these famous advertisements he designed. And it's a real like skin in the game, real, I've got the experience and I'm going to teach you how to make advertising that sells treaties on the subject. So I'm pretty excited to read it. Okay, normally at this point in the podcast, we let each of you plug something, but we had a really interesting experience that Molson went through the last month. Molson, you actually testified before the United States Congress about the interaction between big tech companies and small business. So tell us a little bit about why you were asked to testify and who asked you to testify. So the way that I got that gig, as it were, was basically I wrote an article about one of Amazon's policies, they got picked up by the press. And then from that, I was like able to leverage that into a conversation with FDC. And then uh, one of my buddies said that he had been asked by Congress to testify. And I was like, dude, you got to introduce me. I want to do that. And ultimately, he didn't even testify. I think he was afraid to talk about Amazon publicly. 
So I just emailed the person that he introduced me to, and eventually I got invited to testify before Congress. It wasn't too hard. What was it like testifying? How did you prepare for it, and what was the actual experience like? It wasn't actually that challenging to prepare because the hearing was about small business and Amazon, and I have a small business, and it's on Amazon, and it's been that way for the past like five years. So it's like really easy to talk your own book. Basically, you just have to write like a five-minute piece of testimony. And in my case, I just read from it. And then I took some notes based on what was said. I also did one thing that was cool. I basically like crowdsourced a bunch of ideas uh, for ways to improve e-commerce in the United States from a bunch of fellow sellers. And I uh, submitted that to Congress as a potential source for new legislation. And that was that was special. And maybe uh, after this, we'll attempt to make some of those ideas into law. Are you glad that you testified? What was the reaction like from your friends, family and colleagues in the industry? Um, I'm certainly really glad that I testified up to this point. It's one of my greatest personal accomplishments, maybe sadly. Yeah, it was cool. I haven't been suspended from Amazon yet. So other than the distraction and the time of preparing, it's been a wholly good thing for me. And I don't really know people, fellow Amazon sellers really appreciated the fact that someone went to bat for them and went and to speak out because people are just so afraid to do that. And that made me feel really good. I was watching along on the YouTube live stream and it was hilarious. Your, I'm assuming it was your fellow sellers were just like, go Bolson. Like it was yeah. the, the, like, I don't think I've ever, I mean, I don't watch a lot of congressional testimony on YouTube, but I doubt that there is much like active rooting for someone as they're speaking as, uh, has happened for you. So it sounds like you've got a, a good group of, uh, people that really appreciate the effort that you put into it because it impacts, you know, their lives and businesses as well. But it sounds like you also explicitly solicited their input and whatnot too. So you gave them a voice. The moment that I was most proud of was when it looked like the Congress people wanted to close up the hearing. And I was just like, you know, actually a few (laughs) other things I want to say. At the end of me saying those other things I wanted to say, I ended up calling out one of my fellow testimony people who uh, I later found out was basically a paid Amazon shell. And at the end of that meeting, man, she got out of there so fast. I thought that she was going to be like pissed off for me just being like, like, who are you? Like, I've never heard anyone say anything like that. But she just booked out of that meeting. I laughed so hard when you said it. I couldn't believe it. He literally is just like, I don't know who that lady is, but I know a lot of Amazon sellers and none of them agree with her or it's very much not the norm. And I hope she's still doing well with her sponges, but with all the Chinese competition <laughs> going on, I kind of doubt it. How, yeah. how did you find out that she's paid by Amazon? Or do you actually uh, know? Like this was, I actually told you, um, I'd like looked into her and it said that she like worked for the retail federation and stuff like that. And so I just like had a suspicion that she's, she's trying to like get in good with Amazon, but did you actually find any like basis for a connection? Yeah. So Amazon is like kind of weird. So I'm a little bit skittish about talking about this, but before the testimony, like the Amazon testimony guy came up to me, he knew exactly who I was. He knew exactly who I had been speaking to Amazon at with Amazon. It was really odd, but uh, a buddy uh, who knew someone at Amazon kind of confirmed that. Well, I thought you did a really great job, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes so that our listeners can can watch you as well. Okay, uh, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? I'm going to plug the future legislation 
And I want all you guys to support that because it's going to be really good stuff for America. Sincerely. Okay, well, we'll have a link in our show notes to a document about that. What about you, David? Anything you want to plug? No, I don't really have anything on my end. You can always uh, follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. How can they get in touch with you, Molson? Uh, Molson underscore heart, I think, on Twitter. Oh, that was another funny part of the YouTube thing was someone was like, who is this guy? And they were like, it's Molson. They're like, who's Molson? They're like, it's Mr. Hart. And then they were like, how can I follow this guy? They're like, Molson underscore Hart at Twitter. <laughs> you, even, you even got your Twitter into the, into the comments on the video. <laughs> and then they quickly unfollowed me after they saw the non-politically correct things I say. <laughs> oh, actually, I was wondering, did you, did you see a spike in Twitter followers or anything? I think I picked up about five. Nice. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Yeah. Out of, there were only like a thousand people to watch the video, so it's not that bad. Yeah. And I'm at Dave Kopeck on Twitter, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. It's been great having you all. We look forward to seeing you next month for Ogilvy on Advertising. Don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice, whether that's iTunes, Overcast, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Make sure to give us that recommendation. It really helps with our views. And we'll see you next month.